Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from some of the innovative people at the forefront of countering such aggression and such threats. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I also lead Rusi's Modern Deterrence Project, which studies such hostile activities and what to do about them. Think predatory economics, insurance gaps, and even destabilization caused by Mother Nature. And we propose solutions too. You can find On The Cast wherever you find your favorite podcast. And to learn more about modern deterrence, visit www.rusi.org slash modern deterrence, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. And you can tweet me too. I'm Elizabeth Braw. Many thanks to our partners at Willis House Watson for making this podcast possible. Now, insurance gaps, you say. What's that? And what does it have to do with national security or with coronavirus? An enormous deal, in fact. When the COVID-19 outbreak is over, countries' economies will be in tatters. Governments are already trying to support restaurants and other businesses that are having to close their doors. But whenever a major disaster occurs, one of the most important questions is, did the company and the person, did they have insurance? That's because we don't insure ourselves nearly enough. And that causes enormous gaps between what's insured and the losses when something goes wrong. Now consider these figures. The earthquake that hit Italy in August and October of 2016 caused losses of $6 billion. And of that, only 3.4% was covered by insurance. And the Kumamoto earthquakes in Japan in the same year caused economic losses of $32 billion. And of that, only $7 billion was covered by insurance. And here's another thing. Geopolitical and security risks endanger about $133 billion in some of the world's 279 most important cities. These are clearly vast sums of money that can be lost in a crisis, whether it be one caused by Mother Nature or by a hostile state. And that makes insurance gap a critical vulnerability in our modern society and one that hostile countries can exploit. My guest on this episode is James Vickers, who is chairman of Willis Re International, which is a global reinsurer. And I interviewed James when he spoke at a recent modern deterrence event about insurance gaps. I'm joined today by James Vickers, chairman of Willis Re International. And uh, James, you have kindly joined me to discuss insurance gaps, which is a a term that most people, it's safe to say, uh, have no idea it even exists. So can you explain to us why it exists? And I'm particularly interested in why people should be concerned about it. I'm concerned about it. You're concerned about it. Why should everybody else be concerned about it? Elizabeth, thanks for the opportunity for me to speak about this. Insurance gap is the gap between economic loss that uh, society suffers and what is actually insured and therefore recoverable. Now, on average in the last 10 years, if we look at natural catastrophes, only about 30% of any natural catastrophe loss on average is covered by insurance. That means that there's a shortfall of 70%. And that economic loss falls back onto governments, onto individuals, onto corporations, which affects their ability to continue their economic activity and in extreme cases will create severe hardship and potentially social unrest. So if I look for 2019, 
Natural catastrophe losses were in the range of about 150 billion. The insured element was about 53 billion. So there's 100 billion of economic loss that's falling onto individuals. And that is what we're talking about in the insurance gap for natural catastrophes. There's a similar and larger gap when it comes to mortality and an even bigger gap when it comes to healthcare. These are quite significant figures. Now, people would say, of course, the insurance industry is interested in talking about insurance gaps because they, they want to insure more. But it's also a national security issue, which is where it concerns uh, all of us, because if a disastrous event or even an event short of, of disaster happens and we are not insured or the target, the, those affected are not insured, uh, it raises the question of who should pay. Uh, give us an example of, of uh, what happens in such cases. Well, I mean, there are two examples we can look at. One is a very uh, well-formed example, um, which is in New Zealand with the Christchurch earthquakes in 2012. The economic loss there was about $40 billion at a time that New Zealand economy was $200 billion, So that's 20% of the economy affected in those earthquakes, yet 30 billion, so 15% of the GDP was paid by insurance and reinsurance. If we then move to some of the emerging uh, markets, if you look at the terrible cyclone that happened in 2018 in Mozambique, there was virtually no insurance at all. So the individuals who were affected, their livelihoods were wiped out. They were totally reliant on state aid, which Mozambique is not the richest country in the world, creates quite a severe fiscal strain. You can carry on that analogy if you're looking at some of the drought conditions that are coming in sub-Sahara Africa, which is prompting people to move from their rural economies, seeking jobs in cities, not finding that, and then that begins to prompt, or is a prompt, for the immigration wave coming up to Europe. Now, governments could conceivably say, if you didn't have insurance, tough luck, we're not paying. Is that happening or are governments essentially stepping in as as a last resort? This is difficult because this comes down to politics. Um, It's very difficult for elected politicians to say tough luck, you know, we're not paying. Politicians are interested in being re-elected. They have a duty towards their society. They will try to find some way to alleviate, or they face severe social unrest and a loss of office. The question is, what is their capacity to do that? A lot of the countries are heavily indebted. Where do they get more money from to pay for these things? And then if they do have that, how do they distribute it internally to the right places? Now, a lot of the aid agencies and also the UN have recognised the critical role that insurance can play in there. And in fact, insurance is, is, is a key lever in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And there are examples of schemes that have been put together, the two that spring to mind most to the Africa Risk Capacity, which was uh, supported by DFID, and that provides drought insurance to countries in Africa It's structured on a parametric basis, so the money is paid immediately, so that immediately it's apparent that the harvest would fail. At that year, governments receive money which they can use for rural uh, relief. And a similar scheme, but 
this time for hurricanes, has been going quite successfully for over 10 years now in the Caribbean, called CRIF, the Caribbean uh, Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility, has the same function, but this time it's providing funds following a major hurricane. Now, another area that's of, of huge concern when it comes to insurance gaps is uh, cyber. And uh, countries, large and small, wealthy and uh, less wealthy, are being targeted by cybercrime and also hostile activities from other countries, governments and their proxies. How do insurance gaps, uh, what is the situation when it comes to cyber and how can hostile states essentially exploit insurance gaps to, in essence, ruin a company or even a, a, a government? Well, cyber insurance is, a, is a, a relatively new field that the insurance industry has been developing. At the moment, the global premiums are probably in the range of about $6 billion. So it's not particularly large, although the demand is very great. The issue for the insurance industry is not providing coverage for an individual or one organization. The problem the insurance industry faces is around systemic risk. What happens if one of the main cloud service providers is infected through a cyber attack and everybody using that service um, is affected? That creates an extraordinary accumulation of losses um, that the insurance industry can't cope with. The other issue is use of a cyber for terrorism or other malicious acts. And again, this is where the insurance industry does have some difficulty because when we start looking at broader security, the private sector does tend to look towards the government, that the government, one of the government's primary duties is to provide security for its citizens and for its nations. Now here in the UK, we have a, a, a terrorism facility called Pool Re, initially set up to provide physical asset coverage after the IRA attacks in the 1990s. That is beginning to look at expanding its coverage to provide terrorism for uh, cyber. And it's a joint public-private venture to try to manage this risk. And I think when it lo you're looking at these extreme cyber scenarios involving malicious actors in the gray area of terrorism slash war, it becomes difficult for the industry the private sector to manage that by themselves and some form of, of governmental public-private partnership is needed to deal with what is essentially a tail risk. And so what we would, what we might see then is a, something similar, a, a public-private partnership to ensure cyber risk, uh, especially cyber risk uh, stemming from a geopolitical aggression and uh, with the government as, as the ultimate guarantor of that risk? My personal view is that is probably the only long-term sustainable answer. The difficulty is the insurance industry relies on modelling and trying to model different scenarios, what might it cost in a worst-case scenario, and cyber is extremely complicated. It's not like natural catastrophes where there's been a lot of work over the last 30 years, earthquakes, floods, typhoons, and you know, our understanding of the natural phenomenon around the world is improving. Cyber is not at a similar stage. And some may argue we'll never quite be at that stage. But in the absence of that, yet 
the demand, the clear demand for some form of, 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 of coverage and protection, in my personal view, it's, it's likely to end up in some type of public-private partnership. And following up from that quickly, it's virtually impossible to, to model cyber risk anyway, is it not? Because it's, it constantly evolves, whereas an earthquake is it's always an earthquake. Um, yes, it's very challenging. I wouldn't say it's impossible. I mean, there's certainly an awful lot of people out there trying to model cyber risk and a lot of them in the private sector, a huge amount of academics. And to be fair, a large number of people in the IT industry as well, because they recognize it's a major threat to their business model. So there are a lot of very clever people looking at trying to manage this. Now, whether the acceptable models and scenarios can be developed, we'll wait and see. But it is without doubt very challenging. Going on very quickly to a somewhat uh, different subject, that is supply chain risk. And it sounds terribly dry and boring, but actually major companies or even smaller companies, it's not enough for them to, to have insurance for themselves because they can be affected by problems, mishaps and worse in their supply chain. And as we know, the supply chain is, is, is so large that, that companies may not even know all their all the, the parts of their supply chains. Can you talk a little bit about that, mm. how that relates to insurance and, and maybe creates uh, insurance gaps where, where companies may not even be aware that they exist? Yes, supply chain, particularly in the increasingly globalized economy, has become a very critical issue. Um, and you're right, a lot of companies, they don't even know their full supply chain, yet they're entirely dependent on it. Now, the insurance industry has over many years developed policies to cover this, business interruption policies, contingent business interruption policies. But these are policies of indemnity, which requires a proof of loss and also requires um, some quite sometimes difficult uh, loss adjusting. But the demand is there. And so there is an emerging insurance uh, product development, more around parametric type products for companies to buy to protect themselves in the event of some supply chain disruption. What do I mean by parametric? I mean policies which are triggered by some easily measurable and definable external index. And the advantage of these policies is that they pay out very quickly. So at a moment that the company is facing that immediate cash flow problem, they can get paid. So this is a, a, a growing area. And it's a recognition that for a lot of insurance in the commercial side, the value is no longer so much in the physical assets, it's actually in the intangible assets. It seems um, that the, the old motto, know your customer, is actually involving into know your supply chain. And uh, you have described very clearly to those of us who, who don't deal with supply chain issues on, on a daily basis, how uh, that works and, and why that is important. Thank you very much for coming in. And I think your points have illustrated once again why national security today is not just about the armed forces or not even just about the government, but about the whole range of institutions, organizations in society, because if we don't have insurance, for example, our countries could be facing a very severe uh, disruption and uh, disruption to our economic systems and in fact, unrest. And yet uh, most of us are not familiar with, with the term insurance gaps. I think now 
the listeners of this podcast will uh, understand why it's an important issue. So thank you very much, James Vickers. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Now, COVID-19 has made insurance gaps extremely relevant and, in fact, urgent, because once the virus outbreak has been defeated, there comes the question of who should pay for the losses. Now, should countries introduce something like Obamacare for geopolitics, forcing us to buy insurance? That won't solve the problem this time, but it may solve the problem for future contingencies. And if that's not the answer, how else can we make sure that our countries don't go bankrupt in case of serious damages caused either by Mother Nature or by hostile states? Tweet me your thoughts and your suggestions. And again, my Twitter handle is Elizabeth Braw. Many thanks to our producer, Tom Askert. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.